excited about today's message, and the reason that I'm excited about today's message is because uh, my favorite verse of all times is in today's message, and if you have a Bible, if you have a Bible app, and, uh, and you have a program, go ahead and pull both of those out, because I want us to jump in uh, as we're walking through this summer, God's game plan, and the idea of God's game plan is God's playbook in Ephesians, that God had some incredible things to say to individuals before he gets to talking about the church as a whole. And so last week, many of you were here, some of you may have missed, and we talked last week specifically about the benefits of being a Christian. And, uh, and, and, and Paul described a dozen of those last week, and actually through the book of Ephesians, there's about 20 plus of those, and you can find some of the benefits of what it means to be a follower of Christ. And, and when you begin to discover those, it changes a little bit, or the whole core of who you are because then you recognize that Christianity isn't just somebody saying yes to Christ for the sake of fire insurance, but understanding this, uh, the things, the benefits that God calls you and who he calls you to be and what he calls you and what he says about you. And even today describes it even a little bit further in that concept and that idea. And so today here's where we're going to go. And we're just going to look at the first 10 verses. And I want to say this, that there's, a, there's two plans really that anybody can follow when it comes to salvation. There are two different plans that people try to follow. And, and I see so many people following the first plan, and I see a lot of people who follow the second plan, but what I've noticed is this, is that even non-churched people, people who aren't even Christians, who say, you know what, I really don't need Christianity, and I don't, I don't know if I need to go to church, and all those kind of things, I watch them try to live out these two plans, and today I'm going to describe them, and I'm going to give you a chance to make a choice to say, okay, which plan is working? for you. And Paul describes this as he begins in Ephesians chapter 2. And the first plan is this. Here's plan one. If you're writing down notes, you can take this down. Is that God helps those who, everyone out loud, help themselves. Show of hands. Anybody ever heard that phrase before? Okay, good. Seven or eight of us have. That's good. You, you know, here's the thing is that I hear that phrase used a lot. And I want to say this to the, you, those of you today that that phrase is never found in Scripture. just want you to understand that. And Paul describes this a little bit because here's what happened in Paul's day. And if you remember, Ephesus was this town that at one time was the central city of all the things that were happening to connect people from Asia to Europe or to the Middle East. And the understanding behind this town is that for hundreds of years, it was a primary city. And then in the course of the last several years, leading up to the writing of this, the city had started this major canal that connected two major bodies of water started to fill up. And because of it, the commerce in the city started to go down and go down considerably. And people saw Ephesus at the time of Paul as being at the tail end of the big revival of the city. And so it was sort of the, this is what we used to be. These are the things we used to be. We used to be known as this. And Paul recognized that even inside the people of Ephesus, they had sort of a self-esteem issue where they just kept seeing themselves as has-beens 
Christians, that we used to be this, this used to be the case, and now that we're not. And Paul writes in Ephesians 1 about the importance of who they are in Christ and what Christ says about them. And then in Ephesians 2, here's where Paul begins, because he recognizes in his day, and the same thing is true today, of how many of us live out plan one in our lives, that if I'm good enough, if I try enough, and if I try enough good stuff, and if my good stuff outweighs the bad stuff, then in the end, God has to say yes to me. And the problem is this. So many of us live this kind of life. And the only reason that you can even give for why you choose things that you choose and how you choose those things about what's right and wrong and why you choose right is because you think to yourself, if I choose enough right things, then in the end, I make it. You know, and if you ever watch golf, one of the things that you recognize in professional golf is that the last couple of days, there's a cut that happens. And when somebody uh, gets a low enough score, then they make the cut. And the thing is, is that I see so many Christians who are living their life trying to make the cut. You create some kind of a line somewhere, and here's what you're thinking. You wake up and you're thinking, man, I've had a horrible week, so God, whatever you do, don't come back this week because this has been a really bad week, and if you come back, I'm in trouble. Wait till I have one of those upswings in my life. Wait till I'm doing more good things in my life. Then you come back, and then some of us are in that kind of a place. We're like, God, look, I've been so far away from you, and I finally came back. This was a good week. I did some good things, so you can come back now because, quite honestly, I think I'm going to make the cut. And this is what I can do. And for many of us, we live life under this plan one of God helps those who help themselves. And some of us even have enough pride in the room to say, I'm good enough for salvation. Because I've done all the right stuff. I've lived inside the margins and the lines. And I've done the things that I was supposed to do. And because of it, I'm good enough for salvation. And the problem with that kind of thinking is it falls short over and over again. Paul addresses this idea in plan one in Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. Listen to what Paul has to say. He says, once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins, you used to live in sin just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers in the unseen world. And then Paul continues on and he says this, he's the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. All of us used to live that way, following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature. And then he concludes this statement by saying this, by our very nature, we were subject to God's anger, just like everyone else, by our very nature. So we tried, we tried to do good. I tried to be the best person that I could be. And the problem is, I fell short. Now, you're asking the question because you're saying, Chris, that's a great statement. God helps those who help themselves. I, I think it's, it's solid. This is why we're not lazy. This is why we go to work. This is why we do things. We produce things in our society because this is happening. So why doesn't this work? I mean, that's a great question to ask. Why doesn't this work? Why does that kind of a life not work? Because I know some people that work very hard, and I know some people that have tried very hard, and I know people that are doing it, and they're doing a good job. So why doesn't that work? And there's a couple of reasons. And the first reason is this. There's the first reason why this doesn't work. It's because it's the way of the world. You see, there's a, a path in the world, and it's the way that the world thinks. 
And if you think about it, the way that the world thinks is, I, I think I can make this happen. I, I, I watched enough Disney princess movies, being a father of, of young girls, that I've seen enough Disney princess movies, and the line of every one of those princess movies that just absolutely amazes me, and kids know it from heart, is that it's, it's one of those lines that says this, you follow your heart right? That's always, you get to that place and, and they're at that, and, and the princess is like, what do I do what I do? And then somebody comes on and they say it in whatever way they do, but it's sort of, you follow your heart. And everybody in the theater, because you know, you all been there and you, you know, and you brought your granddaughter, your daughter, and she's dressed up as a princess and you're like, oh, that's so nice. <laughs> but here's the problem with that. What your heart says and what my heart says are two different things. So who's right? You ever thought about that? I mean, this is one of the reasons why some of you love to go on social media and tell everybody why your thinking is right and everybody else's thinking is wrong. Because you're following your heart and your heart says this is right and your heart says this is wrong and I'm going to make a choice between what's right and what's wrong. And my standard is the standard that exists. And the reason it's my standard is because God helps those who help themselves and I've been working it hard and I've figured out the system and I've got the right system. And it fails. Jesus would describe it this way in the book of Matthew, the seventh chapter. He, he would write this verse. He'd say, but the gateway to life is narrow and the road is difficult and only a few ever find it. You know why Jesus described this? Because the way of the world is very simple. It says, if you follow your heart and you do what you need to do and you do what you're right and what's right in your eyes and then in the end, you should be good and God should accept you because it's based on your standard. See, this is what we end up doing whenever we find things that we think that shouldn't be sins, and the scripture describes them as sins, and we try to describe them away as we just say, well, but my standard's this. I want to try to twist it some here, try to make it sound a little bit different there. And here's why we, we figure this out, because then you and I come to a place where we can say, hey, this is the standard, and this is why I think it's right, and it's the way that everybody else says is okay, and therefore, it's the way of the world. There's a second one, and the second one is this, because you and I have this problem that we can't stop doing things that we know and God knows are wrong. Anybody here sin this week? I know I did. I sinned this week. Some friends allowed us the opportunity to stay at their lake house this week, and I realized that I'm not as young as I used to be. And so we went out on a pontoon boat, and we got this uh, tube thing that you got to get on, and the kids were like, Dad, you got to do this, you got to do this. And I thought, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm still in the running for Dad of the Year, so I'm jumping on this sucker. I told my wife, I said, you start the camera because you're getting 30 seconds of footage and that's about it. And so we go out 30 seconds and then I'm like, cut it off. I'm done. That was enough. I had it. And so, and some of you are friends of mine on Facebook, you'll get the chance to see the footage this week and, and know that, that that was all that I was on there. And then, and then after we get back, my son's kind of adventurous and he said, dad, he said, let's get on the jet ski. And I said, okay. And so we get out and I get on the jet ski and I never realized that, that I'm not really in the best shape that I used to be. And so we get out on this jet ski and, and, and uh, he's like, faster, faster. And so we get up to about 45 miles an hour. I look over and there on the pier is my wife giving me the look of death, like you're out there killing my son. I don't care about you, but our son, you don't kill him, right? 
And so we end up getting back, and, and, and we're there. And then that night, and we're in the house, and, and I'm like still in the running for dad of the year. And so I'm like, okay, kids. And we start wrestling around. I get down on the ground. I'm on my knees, and I'm wrestling the kids. And then all of a sudden, I hear this weird noise in my knee, and I got this excruciating pain. And I'm like, ah! And in that moment, in that moment, because of the pain, it outweighed who was present in the room, and my brain shut off, and immediately all the words that wanted to come out weren't words of God. <laughs> but at least I had enough audacity to use the substitute words for the real words. You've done this, haven't you, right? Where you're like, son of a, Jesus loves me. You know, you're, you're in the middle of pain and you don't know what to say or how to say. Ah, you know? And the kids are looking at you, their eyes are big as saucers, like something just shot dad, you know, and you're, you're, you're just like, oh my goodness. And I, I realized as I got, because I'm like, kids, you know, I got to get up. And, and, and of course, you're looking around and I've got three, they got a small wife and three kids and they're thinking, how are we going to roll dad to something, right? <laughs> And so I mean, they like, like tie a rope around me, and they're trying to roll me somewhere to get me something. To, and, and I'm in, in total pain. And I'm like, ah! And as I'm getting, I finally get on the couch, and I finally get my feet out, and I'm laying there, and I finally feel a little bit better, where I'm not, I don't have the pain anymore. And then all of a sudden, it dawns on me, wow! And I looked over at my wife, and I said, I didn't think that I. Hopefully, I didn't say the words that were in my head. And she said, No, but you were pretty close on a couple of them. You see, the problem is for you and for me is that we cannot stop doing wrong. And here's the thing. I remember sitting there after the pain kind of went away and I thought, man, it's been a long time since I've thought some of those thoughts. But even as a pastor, there are those moments that they come back. And for some of you, you know exactly the wrong things that you have done. You know the thoughts that have gone through your mind. You know the actual actions that you took place, whether that was a few days ago or just 15 minutes before you came to the service. You know those kinds of things happen. And this is why the brother of Jesus would put it this way in the book of James. He would say these words. He would say, for the person who keeps all of the laws except one is as guilty as a person who's broken all of God's laws. And so this is where you and I fall short because I can go back through the Old Testament and I can read all 300 plus laws and I can try to live out every one of them. But if I just missed one, if I just fell short of one, then I fall short of all of them. And here's the thing. While I may feel like I'm in good standing, while I feel like I'm in good shape, while I feel like I'm better, I've cleaned myself up, I've worked very hard, I've made it the best that I possibly can, I'm still falling short of God's standard. And Paul wanted the church in Ephesus to understand this because there is so much false pride that people have because they live this life of I am helping myself and I'm doing better than most. And it still falls short. You see, the result is very simple. I still work hard at being good, but I fail. You do, I do, every one of us does. And this is the dilemma that so many people have. And this is the difficulty, and here's the reason why some of you today came to church and you are tired in your Christianity, because you're tired of being good 
You're tired of trying it over and over again, and you have worked your tail off trying to be good. And let me tell you, because I've been there in my life, there have been those seasons where I, I had the, a sin problem and the certain sin problem that just kept coming back, and I would say, okay, I've been good for three weeks, and then I would fall into my sin pattern again, and i like, oh, and then I would be saying, God, please don't come back in this moment, because if you come back, I'm in the middle of the sin pattern, and then I'd work myself back out, and then I'd be like, okay, I'm back again. Here we go. Okay, God, we're good, and I'd be good for another two or three weeks, and then the next thing I would know, I'd fall back into the sin pattern, and then there I was, standing before God, alone in my room, begging him for forgiveness because I screwed this thing up again and again and again, and here's what happened. Eventually, I came to a place that I became numb. And I had two choices. I either said, I got to walk away from this Christianity thing because it's too much work. Or I got to find another system. And this is where many of you are today. And one of the problems that you struggle with is that you look around and you think you're in a better shape than other folks, but you're tired because you have worked so hard at being good. And this is why if you're looking at the book of Ephesians, the second chapter, the very next verse in verse 4 is one of the most sweetest terms ever in all of Scripture. And you have to understand that verses 1 through 7 in the original language was actually one sentence, one major sentence. And Paul describes in the beginning of this sentence the horrors of what it's like to try to help yourself and figure all this stuff out. And then right in the middle in verse 4, Paul makes a description and he pauses and listen to what he says. This is the best news ever. Turn to your neighbor and say, I got the best news ever. Because for centuries, people have been trying to work it. For centuries, people have been trying to figure this out. In the Old Testament, they would go and they would take something and sacrifice it. And they'd say to the priest, I'm sorry. And the priest would stand before God and he would take this sacrifice and he'd hand it out. And God would say, okay, that's enough for now. And they'd roll back the sins, but it never went away. And it wasn't until Jesus Christ came along that there was that moment, that time, when you and I came to the realization and the conclusion that there's nothing that I can do about this. And verse 4 describes this in a really cool way. Listen to these beautiful words, how verse 4 starts. But God is so rich in mercy, and he loved us so much. Hear this today, church, that you can read the first three verses of this text and see how horrible your life was, and then there's this beautiful line, this beautiful bridge in the middle that says, God was so rich in mercy, and he loved us. And this is where plan two comes in. And plan two is simply this. I come to the realization I can't help myself, but only the sacrifice of Jesus can save me. I am saved by grace. You decide which plan you're on. You decide which plan that you want to be a part of. Let me tell you about the second plan. You may ask the question, well, I'm saved from what? I'm saved from what? Well, really, the thing, if you think about it, it's just to deal with your sins, and not just the sins that you once committed, because this is the problem that so many of us have, and why you're stuck on plan one, is because you say, I accepted Christ as my Lord and Savior, and he took care of my past sins, and he took care of the sin that I had five minutes ago, but I've got to work myself to death for the sins that I'm going to commit tomorrow, or the sins I'm going to commit in 15 years. And this is why some of you struggle in the room. 
because you think to yourself, man, I know the thoughts in the back of my mind and I know the mistakes that I make. And so when I look at this and I see my past sins, I, see my, I know that God took care of those and I said yes to him and then I took my next step and I was baptized and I was like, wow, that's awesome. But then you commit a sin and you're like, oh, wait a minute, what do I gotta do? How do I gotta get this thing out of me? Because I got this stuck in me and then they just start piling on and then you forget because you remember, oh my goodness, I've committed seven sins and I only confessed six of them. What am I gonna do? And then you start piling on again and again and again. And then eventually some of us go looking into the future and we say, how do we do this? And this is why some of you struggle because there's some people that you know in your world that at once said yes to Christ and now you're like, look at the life they're living. Look at the mistakes that they're making. And the problem is, is that many of us in that moment go, there is no salvation for them. And if there's no salvation for them, there can't be salvation for me because I got to keep working this system. And I work it and I work it and I work it. And it's so stinking tiring. And for you to recognize that the sins that you've not even committed today and the sin that you haven't even committed next year is already covered by the blood of Jesus is freeing for us. You want to know what real freedom is? That's what real freedom is. And for many of us in the room, we recognize that. We see this. And so what is it that saves me? I'm saved by what? Well, he describes that here in the next verses. He describes that whole idea of what we're saved by in Ephesians 2, verses 4 through 9. Let's unpack that a little bit. Here's what he says. But God's so rich in mercy, and he loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. Listen to that. There's nothing that you did in this process. It was God who did it. That Jesus Christ died for your sins and he died for your sins on a cross and God says, hey, here's the deal. I'm gonna raise him. And he says, it's only by God's grace that you've been saved. And then he continues on in the next couple of verses. He raised us from the dead along with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms because we're united with Christ Jesus. He continues this best news. He says, God can point to us in all future ages as examples of the incredible wealth of his grace and kindness toward us as it's shown in all he has done for us who are united with Christ Jesus. This is you and me. We are the future ages. We are the ones that he's talking about. It didn't just work for the first generation of Christians, but it works for those of us who are hundredth generation Christians, that this grace is sufficient for you, that this grace is enough for you, that all you have to do is accept it. And now he describes a little bit about it. He says this, God saved you by his grace when you believed. That is it. Belief. Believe in, in the fact that he did this. Accepting the fact and the understanding that Christ died for you. Now, do you notice the difference? Because on one side, I'm working, and I'm working my way to describe whether I'm good enough, and on the other side, I just say yes to Jesus. Which one do you choose? He continues on to talk a little bit about this. He says, he says you can't take credit for it. It's a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we've done so that none of us can boast about it. You see, this is part of our problem is that some of us have a hard time accepting a gift. 
This isn't one of those situations that, that you can remember, you know, maybe years ago, because I know that some of us had this problem where we would watch TV in the middle of the night and, and there would be an infomercial that would come on and they would say, hey, you know, here's the hottest product. And you're like, man, I need seven of those, right? And you, you, you're on the phone and you're ordering stuff. I, I remember watching an infomercial a few years back where a guy literally cut a hole in a boat and then he painted something on the boat and he's out in the middle of the pond. And I'm sitting there watching this thinking, yes, I need seven of those. You know, not I don't even own a boat. There's never been a chance that I'll ever cut a hole in a boat, but I think I need it because there might be a chance that someday I'll have something that leaks and I might drown and I want to know that I have the stop for that, right? And here's the problem is that you get on the phone and as you're getting on the phone, they go, but wait, there's more. This isn't that kind of a situation, ladies and gentlemen. God very plainly says, hey, here's the simple piece. It's a free gift. Costs you nothing but it costs God everything. And that is where the pain of this free gift comes in. Because when you begin to recognize why Christ died for you and the compassion that he has for you, and the willingness that even though you don't know him personally, that he was willing to pause and to go to a cross and die an excruciating death for you, you begin to recognize this is huge. You know, a couple of things for us to note here is that by God, through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, this is why. It's called grace. You don't deserve it, but it was given to you. You can't work your way into this thing. You can't work as hard as you need to because you'll still fall short. You just have to accept it. And that's the second part of it, recognizing that it's a gift, that it's a gift that's been given to you, and all I have to do is accept the gift. And here's the thing. Some of us don't do this, do we? You're not good at accepting gifts. Somebody gives you something nice, and you just give it back to them and say, look, I don't deserve that. And you're just like, I don't want that. I'm not a good accepting gifts. But you get the privilege of being a part of doing this. And if you're willing to say yes to Jesus, that's accepting the gift. Now let me pause here because as we conclude this, there's a new thought that Paul begins to bring in here in verse 10. And the idea behind this thought isn't the piece where some of you in the room are going, aha, that's the catch. Because here's what I've learned in hearing these words is that it gives people two liberties in the room. Number one, when somebody hears that they accept Christ and it's a free gift and that gift covers my past, present, and future sins, some of you in the room right now say, so then why in the world would I want to try to live a good life? Why would I want to do this? Because now, if I've accepted Christ and I get all of this unlimited freedom and I get to do with it whatever I want, there's a reason why we don't. Number one, there are consequences to sin and those consequences are here and now. And many of you know what that's like. Some of you have been married to a spouse that you stepped out on the relationship somewhere in your past and they still remind you again and again of the consequence of your sin. Some of you made a mistake and in 
and making a mistake by doing something that you knew was wrong and you got caught doing it, you still live with the guilt and the regret and the consequences of those things. That's a part of understanding. And anybody in the room that says, I've accepted Christ and I get all of the consequences, I'll take them all, you will deal with the consequences of the sin that you live with. But here's the second piece because here's what happens. Some people say, I've accepted grace and I'm just going to go ahead and live my life as if Jesus never died. You know people like that. But this is why Paul brings the alternative in verse 10. And the alternative is, I'm saved for what? And this is where he brings it in in verse 10. Here's what he says to us. He says these words, we are God's masterpiece. He created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. Plan one, I go do whatever I want to do and I'll just live the consequences on this earth and someday I accept Christ and go to heaven. Number two, I'm saved. I take this gift of salvation and I realize God planned for me to do something incredible and I do it for him and his kingdom. Ladies and gentlemen, this is my favorite verse in all of scripture. It transformed me in ways that I've never been transformed before. And here's why. Because when I began to understand this masterpiece thing, that this is what God thinks about you, it changed me. Because I don't know about you, but I realized along the way that for me personally, there were moments that I didn't feel like much of a masterpiece. You have to understand where this word comes from. Some of you in your scriptures and in your versions of the Bible, it says we're God's workmanship. And, and the, the actual phrase that he's using is a phrase that's very unique even to the Ephesians. And the reason why it was unique to them was because in Ephesus, there were all of these temples that were everywhere to these Greek gods. And people would come and they would worship these foreign gods in different places. And what happened in Ephesus is that there were people who made their money by taking pieces of wood and they would carve these intricate pieces together and they would look exactly like the actual statues that were in front of folks and they could see them and they could buy them and take them home and these master carvers were people who were incredible at what they did and the phrase that Paul uses is this exact phrase to describe them that God took you and he designed you and he formed you and he made you as unique as you can possibly be and that you are a masterpiece in his eyes. He sees you as a complete masterpiece. You may think that you are a $5 painting, but God sees you as priceless. Know this, that when you begin to see what God sees in you, it changes the core of who you are. And it changes how you see everybody else. Because now you don't look at people as tall or short, young or old, bald, lots of hair, good looking, not good looking. But you get to see people and you get to discover how unique God made them and he made them a masterpiece too. You are God's masterpiece. I describe it this way. I got a six-year-old son. He just turned six this week. And two weeks ago, 
for Father's Day in our message. While I was in here preaching, the people who do children's ministry decided it would be a great idea for the kids to color a picture that says Happy Father's Day on it. And if I brought that picture today, many of you in the room would say, seriously? You're excited about that? And and I get it. Because to you, it's a six-year-old coloring. And he loves certain colors that don't match. And there are times he doesn't stay inside the lines because he gets excited and he doesn't want to stay inside the lines. And you could easily find ways to critique this picture. But you know what? Here's the problem. That's your view of it. I'm his dad. And to me, it was a masterpiece. And any grandparent in the room, you know that with your kids, your grandkids, don't you? Man, they start coloring a nice picture. And, it, and even when they're like two, and they use the two colors, right? And they just, and they hand it to you, and they go, Grandpa, this is yours. You look at it, and you say, this right here, I will guard it with my life. Because you're a masterpiece. And you have to understand that when you're willing to trust your life in the hands of God, he sees you as a masterpiece. So why are you working your way? Why are you tired and worn out? Why are you spending all of your time trying to live a good life and hoping that everybody else affirms the decisions that you didn't want to make to begin with? Why in the world are you willing to go after it again and again and again and you're trying to live just above the line because I want to make the cut for heaven? You have made the cut and what God thinks about you, regardless of what you did today, regardless of what you'll do tomorrow, regardless of what you did last night, is he wants you to know you are a masterpiece and he loves you. He loves you unconditionally. And when you begin to recognize that, then the rest of this verse sticks out at you. That you'll realize that you were created anew in Christ Jesus. You are a new creature on the inside. And he prepared incredible things for you to do. And the problem for some of us is we sit back and say, well, I haven't taken a spiritual gift test, so I don't know what that is. I haven't really figured out what I need to be doing here. And so here's the thing. Nobody asked me to do anything. And the problem is this. He already prepared you for this understand this. You see, here's the problem for some of us. is that God already, according to Scripture, prepared you for this, and you're already in the middle of this, and you are so busy trying to figure it out that you miss what's right in front of you. Maybe you've noticed that your neighbor hasn't mowed their lawn in a few days. And what you don't know is that they had a major bill come in a few weeks ago that set them behind and his mower has quit working and he can't really afford right now to pay for getting his mower fixed. And, And you are sitting in your house thinking, man, if his lawn looked good, our property values would sure go up. And God already prepared you. Because you're sitting on a ZTR that's 75,000 inches, right? You can, you can mow China in one, one sweep. You know, you got the biggest thing that's out there. And yet you, You say, gosh, I wish that guy would go mow his grass. Or maybe there's the widow that you drive by their house and and you used to see them and they loved. They loved being out all summer long and they would trim beautiful flower arrangements and you loved how they kept the flowers. And and the problem now is that you're starting to see weeds grow up and they're taking less care of it. And and you just drive by and and, in the back of your mind you think, I wonder if she's okay. And the problem is, is that you don't stop. 
God already prepared you for this kind of work. I watched some of your faces when I was standing up here and seeing the Guatemala video, and some of you were moved physically by watching students do something and transforming their world. And here's the thing. You sit there and go, well, but nobody ever asked me to work in youth ministry. God prepared you for this stuff. You love being around young children, and you just think it's a great thing, and every time they're around, you come alive, and you love doing these things. God prepared you for this stuff, but nobody ever asked me to work in the kids' ministry. Nobody asked me to be a part of those things. You see, this is the thing that Paul's trying to describe to the church in Ephesus. Is he's saying when you realize what God thinks about you, then you have two choices. You can go live your life and be crazy and suffer the consequences of that, or you can come back and you can recognize, I now get to spend the rest of my life serving him and making a difference. And I can tell you, this world needs people who live their life ready to make a difference for the fact that Jesus Christ gave them the free gift of salvation. Folks, I encourage you, I encourage you to do this, to do good works, right there, the last line, to do good works that God has already put before me. Think about it this week. What are those good works? Men, is it making dinner for your wife who's been at home all day taking care of the kids? What are those good works? They're before you. Maybe it's going to visit the aunt that you know you should visit, but you haven't been there for a while. What are those good works? You know, we're coming in to, to celebrate the freedom that we have as a nation. And the problem is, is that the freedom that we have as a nation has for so many of us enslaved us into our Christianity that we work so hard trying to please God and God already is pleased with you because he designed you. You ever miss that? You're a masterpiece. Don't ever forget it. So I conclude by asking you this question. So what's your plan? What's your plan? Are you tired? Are you weary? Are you sitting there going, man, I've been trying to do good and been good and trying to do good and I, I fail and, and I just try to pick it back up and make it happen? Or are you ready to accept the fact that God already calls you a masterpiece and you say yes to him? Look, today, if you came into this room and you're working plan A, there's a great thing for you to know is that you can change to plan B. In just a moment, I'm going to have a prayer and you'll have an opportunity to say yes. And I want to encourage you, even after that, to go visit with somebody and talk to them. Or maybe you're even a little bit confused about it and you want to talk to somebody. We'll have somebody here in the room that would love for you to say yes to this plan. Why? Because the rest of Ephesians, Paul's going to start to turn the page here. And he's going to get away from the personal side and say, here's what happens when a corporation of people, when a body of people together called the church realize that they're masterpieces and they see this, then something incredible happens that the world sees something that they want and they want to be after and the church begins to move and God's playbook really gets into action and it grows beyond anything you can ever imagine because people look at it and say, wow, what's different? They treat the world different. They see each other different. They look at each other different. They love each other different. They encourage each other different because you are part of knowing that you're God's master plan. He loves you. He loves you unconditionally. Don't forget it. Let me pray for us. God, I know in this moment 
that there are some people in this room, there are people in our North Kokomo campus, there are people that are watching this online that right now are saying, man, I've been working plan A for all of my life. And I realize that it's not enough. It's just never enough. And so, Lord, I pray that today people would switch from plan A to plan B. That we would just accept your grace. That we would take this freedom. And, Lord, that you would work on us. And I know it's going to take the rest of our lives for some of us for you to work out this works mentality inside of us. And God, help us that we say yes to doing the right things to being a part of the kingdom, not for the sake of saying, I hope this earns me salvation, but for the sake of saying, I already have it, and God sees me as a masterpiece, therefore I'll step out and serve because of his love and compassion for me. God, help us to do that from a different kind of perspective, from a different attitude and a different life. Jesus, remind us in this moment that we are, are your masterpiece. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.